ready in the harbor, a toy ship it seemed, frozen in a sea of light. Who would guess that there were some thirty or more slaves inside it, waiting breathlessly to be driven naked across the deck and onto the shore? The slaves all make the journey to the club fully clothed for obvious reasons, but before they're allowed to see the island, let alone set foot on it, they are stripped. Only naked and subservient are they admitted. I was unusually eager to be back. I was finding the vacations harder and harder for some reason. The days in the outside world curiously unreal. And the visit with my family in Berkeley had been unbearable, as I avoided the same old question about what I did and where I lived most of the year. Why is it such a secret for the love of heaven? Where do you go? There were moments at the dining room table when I absolutely could not hear anything my father was saying, just see his lips moving, and when he asked me a question I had to make up something about having a headache, feeling sick because I'd lost the thread. One night I drove into San Francisco with my sister, and we had dinner alone together at a glossy little North Beach place called St. Pierre. There was a man standing at the bar who kept looking at me, the classically handsome young lawyer type. My sister said, Don't look now, but he's eating you alive. What would that have been like? Vanilla sex, as they call it. In some little hotel room hanging over the Pacific with this wonderfully wholesome Mr. Strait, who never dreamed he was sleeping with Miss Lace and Leather from the grandest exotic sex club in the world. Something wrong with your head, Lisa. Mm. Your stock and trade is fantasies, but not fantasies like that. Get out of California right away. And here we are. Circling over Eden again, and it's almost time to have a very close look at those fresh slaves coming in. There had been a very important auction only days ago, one of the only three international auctions worth attending, and I knew we'd bought heavily, full two-year contracts on some thirty men and women, all of them ravishing, with excellent papers from some of the best houses in America and abroad. It seemed the plane had been circling for an hour. I was getting more and more anxious. I had never come so dangerously close to telling my family all about that certain spa that was always being mentioned in the gossip columns, that scandalous club they'd read about in Esquire and Playboy. Guess who created it? Guess what we do with levels of awareness at the club? Ah, sadness. Barriers that can never be broken. Better to lie and lie well, as Hemingway put it. I'm almost home. Almost okay. Finally, the pilot announced the landing, the gentle reminder to fasten my seatbelt. We're going in, Lisa. I felt the air in the small cabin subtly change. I shut my eyes, imagining for a moment some thirty perfect slaves, that it would be difficult for once to make my choice. Give me one really unusual slave, I was thinking, 
one true challenge, something really interesting. That's why I want to be back here, isn't it? That is what I'm supposed to want. They told me to bring any clothing I would want when it came time to leave. How did I know what I'd want when it came time to leave? I'd signed a two-year contract for the club, and I wasn't even thinking about when I would leave. I was thinking about when I would arrive. So I filled up a couple of suitcases pretty quickly and put on the dispensable clothes they told me to wear for the trip. And then there was an overnight case with what I might require on board. But at the last moment, I threw in my tuxedo thinking... What the hell? Maybe I'd go to Monte Carlo as soon as it was over and gamble every cent they'd paid me for the two years. It seemed a perfect thing to do with the hundred grand. I mean, it was such an irony that they were paying me anything. I would have paid them. And I packed my new book, too. Though why, I wasn't sure. It might still be in a few bookstores when I got out if the wars in the Middle East were still going on. Photography books tend to stick around that way. But then again, maybe not. I just had this idea that I should look at it as soon as I left the club, maybe even page through it on the plane out. It might be really important to remind myself of what I'd been before I went in. But what were the odds that I'd still think I was a pretty good photographer by then? Maybe in two years it would all look like trash. As for El Salvador... The book that didn't get done. The book I was leaving undone. Well, it was too late now. All I cared about on that score was shaking this eerie sense that I ought to be dead. Just because some asshole had almost seen to it this feeling it was some kind of special miracle that I was living and breathing and walking around. It was strange the last evening. I was sick and tired of waiting. Ever since I'd signed that contract, it had been nothing but waiting, turning down the assignment from time I'd ordinarily jump at, drawing away from everybody I knew, and then the final call. I closed up the house in Berkeley, almost called home to say goodbye again, but then didn't, and then I took a cab to the waterfront address. Nothing but a deserted warehouse until the cab had pulled away. And then a well-dressed man appeared, one of those nondescript guys you see everywhere in the financial district of a city at noontime, gray suit, warm handshake. You must be Elliot Slater. He led me out onto the pier. A handsome yacht was anchored there, dead quiet like a white ghost ship with its string of lights reflected in the black water, and I went up the gangplank alone. Another man appeared, this one a lot more interesting, young or at least my age with nicely unkempt blonde hair and very tan skin. His white shirt sleeves were rolled up to the elbow and he gave an extraordinary display of beautiful teeth when he smiled. He showed me to my cabin and took the suitcases off my hands. You won't see these again for two years, he said in a very friendly manner. Is there anything perhaps you want, Elliot, just for the trip? Everything in your cabin will be put in these afterwards, your wallet, passport, that watch of yours, anything you leave. I was a little startled. 
We were standing very close together in the passage, and I realized this meant he knew what I was, where they were taking me. He wasn't somebody who merely worked on the yacht. Don't worry about anything, he said. He was standing under the light, and it showed a few freckles on his nose, the sun streaks in his hair. He slipped something small out of his pocket, and I saw it was a gold chain with a nameplate. Give me your right wrist, he said. It raised the hairs on the back of my neck, the touch of his fingers as he put the bracelet on me and snapped the clasp. Your meals will be pushed through that slot. You won't see anyone or talk to anyone during the voyage, but the doctor will come for a final check. The door won't be locked until then. He opened the cabin door. Soft, amber light inside, dark grain wood under a sheen of plastic lacquer. His words had set up a din in my head. The door won't be locked until then. And the little bracelet felt annoying, like a cobweb clinging to me. I read my first name on the plate and something like a code of numbers and letters beneath it. I felt hairs rise again on my neck. The cabin was okay. Rich, brown leather armchairs, mirrors all over the place. Large bunk with too many cushions, built-in video monitor with a library of films on laser disc under it, lots of books. There was a coffee grinder maker, beans in a glass canister, a refrigerator full of French mineral water and American soda, a tape player, and unopened decks of exquisitely decorated cards. I picked up a paperback Sherlock Holmes. The door opened without a knock, and I jumped. It was the doctor, obviously, in a starched white coat. With an easy, amiable expression, he set down the inevitable black bag.